Uh, Professor John Riker came to Colorado College in 1968. He's finishing his 40th year of teaching at the college. It's hard to believe. Uh, totally amazing. Um, John is, I think it's fair to say, a legendary member of the Colorado College faculty. Um, and he's been a very prolific um, scholar and philosopher, as well as a charismatic and much-loved teacher. The author of two very notable books, Human Excellence in an Ecological Conception of the Self and Ethics in the Discovery of the Unconscious, John works at the intersection and has worked for a long time now at the intersection of philosophy and psychoanalytic theory. More broadly, I think we could say that what John is working on is a big project about the nature of knowledge and the nature of what it is to be an excellent person in the Greek sense of excellence, which I'm sure John will be talking about this afternoon. We're lucky to have him today because uh, he's almost just back uh, from Chicago, where he spoke to the Chicago Psychoanalytic Institute. And he's about to go off to New York, where he will be speaking um, to uh, the division of the American Psychological Association devoted to psychoanalysis. Um, his topic today <clears throat> is Ancient Wisdom, Modern Lives, Why the Greeks Still Matter. So please join me in welcoming my colleague and my friend, John Riker. It was a lovely introduction. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, I'm honored by your presence, my heavens. What a lot of souls to speak with. Uh, I'm a little bit afraid. Uh, when I first agreed to do this paper, I thought, I, I'll just do it spontaneously, write a, jot a few notes out to myself and speak it. Uh, that way I wouldn't put too much pressure on myself, and I can do that pretty easily. And then this awful thing happened. Namely, the previous addresses in this series have been so good that I got terrified. And so I said, I can't take a chance on just being not terribly good and shaming the department. Uh, so, so I then started to write out my thoughts, leaving spaces for ad-libbing here and ad-libbing there. And so it's a mess. Um, but I think I will read most of it. I will have to ad-lib some of it. My major fear is I don't know how long it is. I just don't know. Uh, I know it's going to go at least 40 minutes. And I will try to do my best after that uh, to pull it in within some kind of reasonable time, although I have not been successful at doing that recently. So here goes. First, I want to say something about Glenn Gray, because this is in Glenn's honor. And I was his colleague for nine years at the college. Um, he was a remarkable human being. And I, the first thing to say is I was never close with Glenn, even though I was in the same department for nine years. This was in his very mature years, and the world was calling upon him to deliver his wisdom to it. So he was going over and seeing Heidegger and doing translations. Uh, and teaching and basically carrying on a worldwide correspondence with uh, incredibly important people. Um, so I didn't get to see him that often, but his presence 
was transforming for me and for the department. And in many ways, when I try to think what that presence meant to me, I, I could go on for the whole lecture about that, but I want to cut it down to one thing. Glenn said to me <clears throat> that the proper forum for philosophy, that is to say where philosophy happens, is in the classroom. That is where philosophy comes alive and takes place. Yes, it's very, very important to write. I mean, Glenn was a great writer, uh, and he pressed upon me that it was necessary for me to write. But you write in order to be able to think more profoundly and to do philosophy in the classroom in a better way, not to write some of little piece that three people will read in, in an article, but not be part of the activity of philosophy in the classroom. Glenn loved teaching at Colorado College. He just loved teaching here. He had offers to teach at any number of more prestigious institutions, but he decided to stay here. And the reason he decided to stay here was that he thought that Colorado College students were a strange and wondrous group, at least those who came to philosophy classes. Right? Um, they were so strange and wondrous that they were genuinely worth teaching philosophy, and when they were engaged, they allowed philosophy to live in a way which is rare in contemporary academia. The classroom in philosophy at Colorado College flourished with Glenn and continues to flourish. I agree with Glenn. I don't know what it is, but there's something about Colorado College students who take philosophy which is indeed wondrous because they allow philosophy to come to life in the classroom and to stay alive. So they are the reason why Glenn stayed. They are the reason why I stayed. And it has made all the difference. So I would like to start as a tribute to Glenn and as a beginning to my paper to read one paragraph from Glenn's book, Hegel and Greek Thought. It's his first book. It was actually his dissertation. If I could have written a dissertation like this, I might have amounted to something. Um, it's just astonishing. It's a paragraph on Hegel and the, and the German idealists, and I think maybe one of the better paragraphs uh, ever written on them, and it will lead into my paper. <clears throat> the permanent value of German idealism consists in its poetic appreciation of empirical phenomena, its artistic appreciation and religious insight. The idealistic school was preoccupied with the meaning of events, with their relevance to human experience, not with recording and interpreting facts. The metaphysical systems in which Hegel and his contemporaries cast their thought may well be called philosophical mythologies. Their claim was not to describe empirical phenomena, but to comprehend in creative vision the meaning of the world, natural, human, and divine, these systems are true, but not, not in the sense that a scientific formula is true, but as a work of art is true. They represent the same kind of truth as does Dante's divine comedy. The idealist held that such truth is ultimately the only valuable truth because it alone aims at setting for life a standard that satisfies the human spirit. Whatever may have been their illusions, these German idealists were subtle and profound enough 
to realize the symbolical character of their attempts to interpret the scope and deepest reach of man's surmise regarding the world. It's beautiful. What Glenn said about the German idealists can be said about the Greek philosophers. Their metaphysics are at best questionable, but their insights into human existence, the first systematic insights in the West, ring as fresh and as true today as when they first burst into the world in the 5th and 4th century BCE, Athens. Their brilliance literally birthed Western culture, and their light still illuminates almost better than any other a path through the dense, almost impenetrable darkness that surrounds this strange existence that we human beings share. Before the Greek philosophers, the only meanings available were local meanings, those one happened to be born into. Then with the pre-Socratics, but especially with Socrates, philosophical inquiry was born and with it a way to think about, a, th a way to think beyond locality, a way to open the human mind up to the whole universe without being afraid of its darkness, its irrationality, or its unavailability. They unabashedly asserted that the human mind is so powerful and profound that it can, without the aid of instruments or any technical discoveries, come to know the ultimate nature of ourselves and the universe in which we live. This is the great confidence which launched our culture. Two and a half millennia later, this confidence is shattered. Hume, Kant, and their modern descendants have proven to us in irrevocable ways that the human mind cannot know what is ultimately real. Our minds can at best recognize truths in the world of appearance, the world as it appears to us, but can never penetrate to what the world or ourselves are in themselves. The epistemological sobriety of modernity makes it hard to regain the faith that the Greek philosophers had in the power of reason and so they are often forgotten in the curricula of philosophy departments. They are often considered rather lovely relics whose proper place is in a philosophical museum rather than as presenting living possibilities for modern lives. I think this is a misguided way to think about Greek philosophy in which to show how Greek philosophy can brilliantly transcend the centuries and speak profoundly to our modern lives. However, before we can turn to how Greek wisdom can speak to modern lives, we need to know what a modern life is. To do this, I must turn to the first piece of ancient wisdom I wish, I wish to present, namely Plato's astonishing statement in the Republic that the souls of humans mirror the values and ruling structures of the states that the persons happen to live in. States tend to gravitate toward a singular value or complex of values, and these values determine not only what kind of person gets to rule, but the general organization of the parts of the citizens' souls. In a state that values wisdom, the wise get to rule the state, and the citizens seek to live lives guided by reason. In states that value honor, the honorable, usually military heroes, get to rule, and a spirited, honor-seeking element dominates the psyche 
of the citizens. How are we to characterize modern states? They are, at base, economic societies. While the economic state values accumulating wealth, as in a plutocracy, the attaining of honorable statuses, as in a timocracy, and the indiscriminate satisfaction <coughs> sorry, and the indiscriminate satisfaction of desires, as in a democracy, it is different. It is a different beast from all of these archetypal Platonic states. The values of economic society all revolve around being successful in market activity. It is the ability to come to the arena of the exchange of goods and services with a highly valued commodity or skill, sell your commodities or skills to the highest bidder, and use your profit to buy at the lowest price what commodities or services you need to satisfy your desires. It is a life of productivity, exchange, and enjoyment. Living, in a, living a modern life means, essentially, being able to engage fully in economic activity, and one can do, do this only, or mainly, by becoming an economic person. How does one do this? By adopting the following values, values which I think you will all recognize as being true for your lives, if I'm right, if I'm right. So, one, the key value which governs early life that is to say, the life of you students, is the acquisition of marketable skills and knowledge. Skills and knowledge are better than wealth in an economic world, for the practice of one's skills and knowledge is both an endless source of wealth and that which gives honor and status within the society, that is to say, gives identity in the socioeconomic realm. It can but need not be personally satisfying to practice this knowledge and skill. So value number one, acquire skills and knowledge because these are going to be what you need to bring to exchange in the marketplace. Two, it is not enough to have skills and knowledge. They must be certified or legitimated in the modern world. In a market society, persons do not want to be cheated in the exchange of goods and services, and therefore one of the strongest and growing ever stronger by the day, forces in modernity is the incessant need for legitimation and certification. That is why the students here have come to CC and are paying us megabucks, namely to have your intelligences certified as being intelligent. <clears throat> so far, so. Part of being a modern person is knowing not only how to submit oneself to authorizing agencies, but learning how to convince them that you are good. We might no longer be subservient to kings and nobles, but we are very much under the control of legitimating institutions and processes. Three, <clears throat> the need for legitimation comes partially from the third feature of economic persons Namely, they are out for themselves and their own satisfactions. The rational market agent sells high and buys low. She or he is not an altruist, but in being rational, they happen to drive the market to its lowest prices and therefore do good for everyone. But the only way you get to do this is by being out for yourself. That's what you are told. Right? 
So individualism turns out to be one of the highest values of economic society. However, being out for oneself and thinking that life is about getting one's desires satisfied through the acquisitions of goods and services means that there is always a strong pressure to cheat in economic society. Hence, we have a further reason for wanting goods and services to be legitimated by authoritative agencies. Four, <clears throat> the highest value of economic life is productivity and its highest virtue is efficiency. The reason we want legitimated skills and knowledge is that they are crucial for productivity. The more we produce, the more we can position ourselves positively in the market, whether we are producing its ideas or cabbages. We are good when we produce. The emphasis on productivity and efficiency gives modern persons a very different relation to time than in other kinds of society. We never have enough time because we always need to produce more. Time is always pressured. Indeed, it is fully saturated with things that must be accomplished in order for us to feel good about ourselves. As you wake up in the morning, as I wake up in the morning, that day is fully scheduled, always. Time is saturated. As Foucault says, it is a crime in the modern world to waste time. Five. I know this is, I'm listening a lot in this talk, but, so, but it just is going to, never mind. <laughs> Five. An essential value of economic culture is desire satisfaction. We acquire and practice skills and knowledge not just for their own sake, as might have been done in a medieval monastery, but for a salary or payment. We seek this salary for the enjoyment of life where that enjoyment is conceived of as the satisfaction of desires. It is crucial to add that there is no overarching concept of good by which to discriminate which desires are good or bad. If one has a desire, then prima facie it is good to get it satisfied. In general, the more satisfactions one can have, the better one's life is conceived to be. Desire is crucial for market society because it is the first and final market. If persons have no desire for one's goods or services, they are worthless. If no one desired to learn philosophy, and it's getting close, then my skill at being able to teach it would be worthless in an economic world. Since desire is market, much of economic culture is devoted to stimulating desire, indeed into stimulating a desire to always be in a state of desire. To be an economic person is to find oneself insatiably desiring. A sixth crucial value of economic society is always seeking competitive advantage. The economic world is one of competition and aggression, one cannot simply have good skills and knowledge or create a good product. One must be better than others. The philosophy department had a fine young professor teach here who cannot get a decent tenure-track job because while he is very, very good, in each of the searches in which he is a, has been a candidate, someone else was a little bit better. He lost. Good carries little weight. Being better than others is what it is all about. 
the pressure to be better than others carries into all aspects of life, from wanting a better position, even if one has a quite satisfactory one, a better home, even though one is quite comfortable where one is, better wine, better food, etc. In short, one wants better satisfactions and statuses all the time. Within this value is the pressure not to live a good life, but to have a stupendous life, a life better than all other possible lives, a life better in every way, a life of deep meaningfulness, a life with all the toys, great love, travel to the most beautiful places in the world, the ability to afford whatever one wants. Talk about pressure. You have to live stupendous lives. Seven, and lastly, in my description of the values that go into making an economic person, let me say that economic people need to be abstract. Now, what I mean by abstract is simply unconnected, or let's say moderately connected, not intensely connected. Modern persons need to be abstract in the sense that they are always ready to move to another place, take another job, connect up with other persons if it helps them attain either a market advantage or deepen satisfactions for themselves. If I am a good market person and a university with more prestige than CC calls offers me a higher salary with less classroom teaching hours, then I will feel a tremendous pressure to leave the place I love. That's what it means to be modern. In sum, developing a certified set of competencies, being self-concerned, being a self-concerned individual, loving one's desires and being able to work hard for their satisfaction, being highly productive, being highly aware of where one is in the competitive scheme of things, seeking ever better lives and living with a nice degree of disconnectedness are essential features of what it means to live in the modern world as an economic person. That's my interpretation of who, are, who we mostly are. The joys of modern economic life are considerable. Adventure, freedom, social mobility, openness, an ability to fine-tune one's talents to the socioeconomic world, and enjoyment of an abundant material life stand out as just incredible gifts that this life gives us. Every time I go to the dentist, which is often, I am deeply thankful for market pressures to improve equipment and competency. Our modern world has seen an an enormous extension of the possibility of economic well-being. If we were living a mere 100 years ago, and for me that's not too long before I was born, uh, 80% of us would have been farmers or servants. 80% of us farmers or servants. Another 10% would be working in factories. If I had to take John Rawls's veil of ignorance test about what age to live in, not knowing what class I belong to, but knowing percentages, I would have to choose to live now. It's the only era that you could really choose to live in. However, as you have probably surmised, becoming an economic person living in an economic age carries with it some profound problems. And so here we go, another list, and then we'll get to some wisdom. 
Our way of in the world, our way of being in the world, tends to be, in Heidegger's terms, technological. This does not mean so much that we are always dealing with technology, but we have come to experience ourselves, others, and the world through a technological lens. This lens is that of pragmatism. It asks of anyone or anything, what is its use? That tree out there, you can't see it, the blinds are closed. What is its purpose? Is it to delight the eyes, to give shade, perhaps to become firewood or lumber? Once I know its purpose, that is its being. If it has no purpose, no aesthetic purpose, no useful purpose, it is almost, as Heidegger would say, without being. I once heard, this is true, a real statement proclaimed that the value of Pike's Peak was that a view of it raised the home's value, and obviously the amount he would make if he sold the home. Nothing has being in and of itself. It only has pragmatic usefulness. In Heidegger's terms, everything is converted into standing reserve, even us. In making ourselves marketable, We are turning ourselves into use objects. We have value only insofar as what we do is useful in the market. Two, being economically successful involves a tremendous amount of compliance, or what Foucault calls docility. We have to submit to authorizing agencies and institutions all the time and all of our lives. We are constantly being monitored for our degree of productivity. In this compliance and docility, we lose who we authentically are and become something that is pleasing either to the legitimating authorities or to others in the marketplace. We might be a culture of individualism, but it is at best an abstract individualism, for it occurs within a deeper culture of compliance and obedience. Three. There is something intensely nihilistic and absurd in modern culture. It is connected both to life's not having a justified aim, but only practical purposes, and to the necessary illegitimacy lying behind the legitimating institutions. Legitimating authorities themselves need legitimation, and what legitimates them in turn needs legitimation. This chain of legitimators must end at some arbitrary place. The culture of legitimation cannot legitimate itself. This is why Kafka speaks so powerfully to us about the absurdity of modern life so based in legitimation. Four, the market so destabilizes home life that it undermines the environment necessary for the development of healthy self-structure. Parents are not home, for they need to be continually establishing their identities in the marketplace. Children are not home, for they are establishing their worth on the playing fields. Life is lived in an environment of competitiveness and aggression, not a place of tender, quiet, unrushed love and care. But we know from Freud and other psychoanalysts that a loving, caring world is necessary for the development of the self. The result of economic culture is the production of persons suffering from injuries to the self and the profound feelings of emptiness and worthlessness that these carry. 
These feelings are too painful to bear openly. So we defend against them by developing narcissistic symptomatology, self-inflation, entitlement, the need to be center stage, all of those lovely characteristics which run rampant in the world today. Five, when we live abstractly in a partial disconnection from place, friends, and activities, we feel lonely, isolated, and distant, distant even from our own lives. Six, in the world of better, one is always partially fated and in the hands of luck. Through no fault of your own, you are not starting on the tennis team. It is just that better players came along. You were fully qualified for medical school at Stanford, but so were 1,000 other students, and there are only 35 spots available. So much of modern life depends on luck that we are constantly in a state of anxiety. Seven, modern life feels oppressively pressured. We are pressured by legitimating authorities, pressured by our ideals to live lives better than anyone else, and pressured by our desires for constant satisfaction. These pressures seem omnipresent and make us incredibly tense. As Freud found, too much pressure blows the circuits of the psyche and drives us crazy. Eight, mass society has tremendous powers to infiltrate the soul and colonize it. Invisibly, we lose ourselves to the pressures of society and become conformal. The ever-present danger of losing one's authentic way of being in the world is understood by many of the 19th and 20th century philosophers and poets as the gravest danger of our new world. Nine, modern life is not only experienced as absurd, but as trivial. Life has no grand purpose, so we, like the animals, <clears throat> get our satisfactions and die. That's it. Who cares? Ten, in a market society, one is always dissatisfied. Dissatisfaction is not unpleasant, but we never enjoy the simple feeling of the abundance of life. This, of course, is a paradox. In the midst of the most abundant society ever created, we find ourselves always dissatisfied and depleted. That's enough. No more problems. I, that's more than I can bear, at least. These problems are each rather horrifying, and put together, they make us want to withdraw from the devastations of economic culture entirely. But we can't, for it is the only game in town. What are we to do? Modern wisdom can help us to a degree, but it is a wisdom whose aim is to free us from limitations. It is not a wisdom that can guide us to a different form of life. Ancient wisdom, on the other hand, offers a rather wondrous view of how to live as a human being, and it is one that can be imported into any kind of social order, with difficulty, of course, but not impossibly. So I will briefly look at modern wisdom and then turn to, ancient, to the ancient wisdom of the Greeks for a model of how to construct ourselves so that we might live within economic society but not as economic persons. So first, modern wisdom, very short. 
and then ancient wisdom. For me, all modern wisdom is based in Kant's discovery that subjectivity is always structured. Subjects have a way of being in the world and experiencing the world that is organized by general structures of value, metaphysical, metaphysical commitments, and language that operates at a largely unconscious level. We think we are experiencing the world as it is, but we are in fact experiencing the world the way early 21st century post-structurals, capitalist male or female, etc. persons tend to experience things. These structures of subjectivity both give us the possibility of having worlds and limit what our experiences of those worlds can be. Some structures are more restrictive than others, and some structures carry with them unethical predispositions, dispositions that unconsciously discriminate, for instance, against women, persons of color, or the laboring poor. Philosophy is the most powerful tool ever invented for the uncovering of restrictive structures that are culturally or socially imposed. For instance, feminist philosophers have exposed how we tend to experience the world through patriarchal structures and how these have been devastating for women and deeply limiting for men. In its aim to critically expose the conceptual structures through which, con through which we construct our worlds, Philosophy is, as both the Greeks and moderns know, a realm of freedom, a realm of expansiveness and openness. In what I have just done, examining the structures that inform economic life, I hope to have begun a process of freeing ourselves from these structures. For one cannot be free of what one cannot see or understand. This is why philosophy was, is, and will be always essential in education. It is the deepest and most important way to attain freedom in our lives. The other great freeing discipline in the modern world is an offshoot of philosophy, psychoanalysis. Its aim is to uncover those realms of subjective structuring that contain profound limitations from one's personal life in which operate not simply unconsciously, but with a resistance to being uncovered. Modern wisdom, based in Kant's discovery that subjectivity is always structured, is profound and life-transforming in both its philosophical and psychoanalytic versions. Why do we need the Greeks? Because openness is not enough. We need some kind of direction as to what human life is all about and I think no one understood more about human life than the Greek philosophers. So, last part, ancient wisdom. <clears throat> In our exploration of ancient wisdom, let's start where the Greeks started at the Temple of Apollo at Delphi. Written over its threshold were two commands, Medon Agon and Gnothi Sautom. The first Medon agon means nothing in excess. The second, gnothi sautone, means know thyself. The first, nothing in excess, counteracts the market culture's pressure for everything to be in excess. Excessive salaries, excessive enjoyments, excessive use of natural resources, etc. 
Vedan Agon tells us that ordinary life is okay. We do not need excessive fame, consumption, or desire. You do not need great lives. Ordinary life is okay. If the only ancient, ancient wisdom you take from this lecture is Medan Agon, it will be very good for you. If you tend, obviously, if you come to this lecture, you're not the people who are excessive. Those are, we're talking about the other guys. But when you find the other guys, Medan Agon, tell them that. Know thyself. For moderns, this equals knowing what your strongest market capabilities are and your desires. Know yourself, that's easy. Just find out what you like and what you are good at. For the ancients, the task of knowing who you are is quite different. Knowing the self was a journey, a difficult journey, that could be precipitously dangerous, as it was for Oedipus, who, upon coming to know who he was, found an unbearable truth and had to blind himself. For the philosophers, coming to know yourself meant something other than knowing what you as a particular like or are good at. It meant coming to know what it means to be a human being. And this task, it turns out, is much harder than it looks and involves some incredible, wondrous surprises that are not at all evident in an objective accounting for the biological facts of our existence. We are that animal that is conscious, that has a psyche, and to know who we are means exploring what it means to be minded, to be ensouled. This is a journey worthy of a lifetime, for as Heraclitus of Ephesus says, you would not discover the limits of the soul, although you traveled every road, it has so deep a logos so profound a meaning. So let us start with the ancient ex- so let us start with the exploration of ancient wisdom into the nature of the soul, into the psyche, for it is here where I believe we find the most profound wisdom and dangers in Greek in the Greek philosophers. The most important claim that the Greek philosophers from Thales through Aristotle made about the soul is that its essence is life. Thales claimed that magnetic stones had souls because they can move things without moving. Plato says in the Republic that, quote, the function of the soul is life, and Aristotle claims, quote, the soul is the form of a body with a potentiality for life. Not only is the essence of the soul life, but it seeks to be as alive as it can be. It seeks to live at the highest intensity of life. This is the most important theme in all of Western philosophy and persists through the religious era down to one of its most powerful statements in the philosophy of Nietzsche. Of course, what gives the soul most life is a source of great contention, but that it seeks to be as alive as it can be, that we seek to be as alive as we can be, this is a great truth that is unshaken. But now we must ask, what constitutes the life of the soul? And here we get the second great truth of ancient philosophy. The soul is most alive when it is active rather than passive. As Plato says in the Phaedrus, the essence of the soul is to be self-moving 
rather than to be moved from sources outside of itself. The paradigm of the self-moving soul in ancient philosophy is Socrates. Socrates at his trial and incarceration. He refuses to be moved by external pressures or an internal drive to to survive. He alone is the source of his motivation. Nothing else moves him. I mean, there he is at his trial, and basically all he has to do is to say, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to get you so upset. I will be better in the future. And he lives. All he's got to do, when good old Crotter comes running in and says, Socrates, I've got a boat waiting for you. The jailer's paid off. You can escape. And he says, yes, but is it right to escape? We have to decide this and find out if it's right, because I'm not going to be moved by your entreaties or by your friends' feelings about me or by possibilities. I'm only going to be moved by what feels right to me. I am the active soul. Nothing in life moves me except for myself. It was the vision of Socrates at his trial and at his death was so compelling to the ancient world that for all the ancient schools of philosophy, and for 700 years, they looked to Socrates and said, I want to be like that. How did he do it? And all of the schools were basically about how he got to be that way. So to be self-moving is the essence of the life of the soul. However, the life of the soul has a different, equally important description. The soul's life is its experiences, experiences of the world and of one's inner impulses. For the Greeks, the objects of the world protrude into the soul and implant themselves, making us either respond to them or ingress them into our psychic structure. In this aspect of psychic life, the soul is not active, but suffers. It is in a state of pathos. Likewise, the soul does not choose whether to feel its desires or emotions. They spontaneously appear and force our responses to them. Here again, we are passive. In short, the soul receives a number of environmental and biological inputs, and insofar as it is merely and immediately responsive to these inputs, it loses its true nature of being an active force. In light of these truths about the psyche, you can see why life in modernity always seems to have a depressive aspect to it. The social and economic forces we confront every day are so massive that we always find ourselves to some degree in a state of passivity. It is why students dislike doing their homework, even if it is something you want to read and write about. The source of your doing it is located in the professor's demands, not in your act of choice. The soul has another problem that causes it to lose its active nature. Perhaps the most important psychological discovery of Plato and Aristotle is that the soul can be analyzed because it has parts. We know the soul has parts because the soul has different functions that it performs and because the parts can conflict with one another. When the parts are either disorganized or conflicting, the soul is in chaos. And one of the great principles of ancient ancient psychology is that a soul in chaos is incapable of genuine action or activity. To be active requires integrity. So the problem for the ancient philosophers was this. How was the psyche to regain its, its essentially active nature? Their answer 
is stunning. Unbelievably stunning. In order for the soul to regain its active essence, we must go from being alive to having a life. Life itself is received. We did not choose to be alive, but come to find that we are alive. What Plato and Aristotle place before us is the singular act by which the soul can begin the recovery of itself. Rather than just being alive, one can choose to have a life. This is the crucial transformation, the soul actively deciding to determine its own life rather than merely to find itself alive. Having a life means that one is not fated, but can choose one's destiny. One can be self-determining, like Socrates was at his trial and death. The highest values now involve a person freeing himself from internal and external pressures to generate her life out of, her, out of being who she is, rather than complying with the demands of the world and her body as to who she ought to be. But how are we able to choose our lives? Who is best able to choose a life? What is choice? What allows one to choose? The answer to these questions is that the person best able to choose her life is one whose soul is optimally organized. This organization invariably had reason directing the emotions and desires with the help of the moral virtues, It is the virtuous, rational person who is best able to have a life, for it is only such a person who can self-direct and self-determine her own life. In short, the best kind of life is lived by the person with the best soul, where the best soul is described as one that has attained an inner harmony and which governs itself with knowledge. This answer is of vital importance for us in the modern world. The philosophers might have attempted to describe the best life in terms of narrative variables. That is, they could have attempted to describe the best life by saying that it must be characterized by certain key objective events, such as having power in the assembly, procreating successfully, having a rewarding marriage, attaining substantial wealth, etc. But they didn't. Rather, they said that the best life was one which optimized the activity of the soul, and that this is fundamentally a matter of the internal arrangement and development of the soul. If a good life is is defined in terms of objective variables, then it puts persons in a passive state, for all objective events are partially determined by factors outside of one's existence and choice. I believe this answer to what makes a life good is correct. That the best life is lived by the person with the best functioning soul. But before we can examine what that soul is, we need to be clear about what the activities of the soul are. We have all kinds of experiences in which the soul is doing things, perceiving, enjoying, sensing, thinking, etc. Which of these constitutes the genuine activity of the soul? Plato and Aristotle, this kind of surprised me. I didn't really think about this until this last week, after 40 years of teaching. Plato and Aristotle identified five, but as far as I can tell, only five activities of the soul. See if my colleagues can guess them. Choosing, 
wondering, inquiring, being erotic, that is to say, being in love, and relating to oneself and or a friend. Let me elaborate. Choosing. <clears throat> this basically comes from book three of Aristotle's magnificent Nicomachean Ethics. Aristotle says we choose the means to an end which is given. That is, in choice, we choose how we are going to best actualize our values. We cannot do this without knowledge of who we are, what opportunities are available to us, and without the moral virtues, for the virtues block the power of the passions and give us time and clarity of mind to judge what is best. It is action on the basis of knowledge and virtue that makes choice and activity of the soul. In the modern world, we tend to associate choice with wealth. That is to say, the more wealth you have, the more you're able to choose what you want. For Aristotle, this fails to be activity of the soul because it might involve either unvirtuous impulses, which we do not choose, or a lack of knowledge of what is best for us. Aristotle also carefully distinguishes between choosing and wishing. Choosing connects us to reality. You have to find the means by which to embody your values. Wishing leaves us in fantasy. Even when wishes come true, they are not the activity of the soul. They just happen to be fantasies that materialize. The soul finds its reality, that is to say, its essential activity, in choosing to live in reality. This is crucial when it comes to modernity. Insofar as we find ourselves in economic society without choosing to engage it or choosing how to engage it, we remain passive and live as though in a fantasy. Our lives do not become real to us. So, the first great activity of the soul is choosing. Second, wonder. This is most clearly stated by Aristotle in the Metaphysics, but is present in all of Greek philosophy. Aristotle is simply right when he says that philosophy first began and still begins in the state of wonder. What is wonder? We wonder at that which stands outside of our categories of understanding. Insofar as we are perceiving or thinking about what is usual in the usual way, we cannot wonder. Wonder erupts in the soul when we are confronted with the unusual, the non-understandable, or for some strange reason are evoked to cancel the way we usually think about what is usual. Haraguchi would say that we wonder, that wonder is the experience in which being appears and calls to the soul. Although wonder appears to be a massive, sorry, Although wonder appears to be a passive activity insofar as something outside the soul is impressing on it, it is active because it stimulates the soul to enter into its two most active states, eros and thinking. Aristotle says in the famous book, Lamb of the Metaphysics, that souls wonder at the unmoved mover and are erotically drawn to it. 
for it is full of activity without any passivity. But the unmoved mover is pure thought, and so the souls that wonder at it and love it are called to thinking. So we now need to explore both eros and thought, as they are the most active states of the soul. Eros. Eros is simply being in love with your full body and soul and everything, right? When we are erotically engaged in an activity with someone else and or with our own lives, we feel intensely alive. To have an active soul is to have an erotic soul. This is the great truth of the symposium. Plato says in the symposium, that eros, that is to say, a falling in love or love, always starts with a sense of incompleteness, a lack of wholeness, a dissatisfaction with life. While dissatisfaction is not itself an active state of the soul, I do not think that the soul can move into activity without dissatisfaction. Satisfaction with oneself and one's life is the road to passivity and the loss of the life of the soul. Eros, as Plato also says, if it starts in dissatisfaction, it's stimulated and called into presence by beauty. So the life in which we find love is a life in which we find beauty. That is to say, we are drawn by beauty to love it and to union with it, and in that loving it and union and trying to find a union with it, we are alive and active in our souls in the deepest possible ways. Note that although it's interesting, I want to come to perception because A great deal happens in perception. We think perception is part of the activity of the soul. But it's important in Greek that the verb, the key verb for perceiving, is aisthonomai. And it's a deponent verb. That means it has no active tense. It's only a middle, no active voice. It is only a middle passive voice. Whenever we are perceiving, we're always receiving from the world. And therefore, perception is not itself an activity of the soul. But if in our acts of perception there is beauty, and beauty calls forth eros, love, and we are loving what we are perceiving, that is to say we are in what I would call an aesthetic experience, an aesthetic experience, sorry, an aesthetic experience, then we are alive and active. So not all forms of perception are activities only those in which beauty is present and calling us to love it. Not just present, but calling us to our love. Note that eros is different from mere desiring. You can desire sexual relations, etc. Desire, you can desire food. Desire always involves consumption. Eros involves union. Now, my colleague Judy, over here, loves, erotically loves food. It's it's a joy to eat with her. But she consumes it. I merely consume it for the most part. But as Judy consumes it, she unions with it. (laughs) It's beautiful, right? So it's not just 
a, a destruction or a consumption. It's a coming into union with the beautiful. That is what erotic life is all about, and that's what the Greeks say is one of the deepest and most profound activities of the soul. Not desires which consume, but arrows which seeks union. I think I'll move, because I'm running out of time, to thinking. Inquiry. The joy of thinking, rather than the pragmatism of thought. We do use deliberation to choose, and what to choose, and want to choose well. But for Aristotle, it is the act of choosing, rather than the results of choice, that are the most important for feeling alive in one's soul. We do not think about life merely for the sake of living better. Thinking about life is a crucial part of being alive. It is one of life's most profound and most active of experiences. All genuine inquiry also begins in a state of dissatisfaction that expresses itself in the activity of questioning. There is no inquiry without questioning and inquiry dies when questioning ceases. So questioning is one of the great activities of the soul, although I combine it into the activity of inquiry. The fact that questioning activates the soul is vividly portrayed in the early Platonic dialogues where we see Socrates relentlessly questioning Euthyphro or Polis or Thrasymachus or Gorgias or the Athenian jurors. His questioning not only enlivened everyone present, but was the act that gave birth to Western culture. But what does it mean to question? To question means to put some part of one's being on the line and find it wavering in the realm of not knowing. Speaking with proper interrogatives is not enough. One might, for instance, question whether one really wants to be an economic person, but unless one's economic being is wavering in the possibility of not being, one is likely to start answering the question along the lines of whether it is beneficial to be an economic being. That is to say, to answer the question the way an economic person would answer the question. It is only when we are willing not to know and to chant an important part of our meanings that we can really engage in the activity of questioning. What the soul needs most to question about and to inquire into for the ancients and for me is into the structures of meaning, into values, ideals, and understandings of reality that make life meaningful. For Plato and Aristotle, these meanings needed to be objective, to be grounded in a metaphysical reality that was common to all. They felt that without an objective structure, both the soul and the social order would be too chaotic. I think that they were right in saying that the fundamental task of thought is to inquire into what makes life meaningful and that this thought must base itself in reality and not fantasy, but the reality it must base itself in is not a metaphysical realm of universals, but the very activity of the soul itself. When we do find meanings that express the reality of the soul and start to live those meanings, then the soul feels more alive, more active, more in love with its life, and is more able to stay in wonder. That is, the realm of meanings is not some permanent universal field, but is related inherently to the particular psyche. And it, that is to say, the structure of meanings, like the soul, 
is active and dynamic, while philosophy has provided me with a deep sense of meaningfulness ever since I found it. What has been most meaningful in philosophy has moved and shifted, deepened and opened up to new fields of wonder and inquiry. I hope that when engaging philosophy in a professional way ceases to make me feel alive, I will have the courage to say, done, and begin, once again, to inquire into new structures of meaning. Inquiry comes to completion in one of two ways with choice or with increased wonder and questioning. By choice, I mean not just the choice of action, but the choice to believe. Students read Plato and Aristotle, they read many, many philosophers, think about them, but do not really inquire into them because at the end, they do not go through the process of choice. They do not choose to say, this I believe, this I don't. And until that act takes place, inquiry is a kind of like a fantasy. It's not a genuine activity. It must come to a completion, and one of those completions is to choose to believe or not to believe or partially believe, but to take a stand, to say, yes, no, that's life. Not, okay, done, push the books, what's next? When you don't choose, your learning is not genuine inquiry, but a passivity and felt that way, where the soul slowly dies in education. The other completion to inquiry is further wonder or a new realm of questioning. A crucially important form of this inquiry is when thinking takes itself for its own object and thinks upon the being of thinking. This is what Aristotle calls contemplation and other traditions call meditation. It has a transforming effect, one that seems to leave its practitioners in a state of not knowing, but of wonder. So finally, and then we'll draw this to an end, relating. The soul in many ways reaches the pinnacle of being active in two forms of relating that have a profound relation to one another, friendship and knowing oneself. Friendship is the arena in which we practice love, the virtues, choice, inquiry, and wonder more profoundly than any other area of life. When a friendship or love relation is good, we are not only erotic about our friend, but wonder at who he or she is. We inquire into them and into the meaningfulness of our relation. Our choices often have to do with how to sustain and extend our love relationships. However, friendships, as Aristotle says, also have the possibility of making our internal relation to ourselves visible and knowable. Self-relation and relations to others mirror one another. And this reveals to us the most important realm of inquiry for a person, the journey to self-knowledge. As I mentioned earlier, the journey is not much a part of the economic world today, for it involves merely coming to know what one's favorite talents are and how, they must, and how they might be most beneficially employed. But as Aristotle has revealed to us, the soul is not primarily an entity with characteristics, but an activity that has a relation to itself. The soul appears both as subject and as object. 
It is an activity, but an activity that is objectively structured. Every attempt of the subjective knowing part to grasp itself as an object fails, but leads further down a path into the mystery of the soul. This is Hegel's great discovery, the one that Glenn elucidates so beautifully in the book I read. Freud has added complexity to the task of self-knowledge, for now much of the soul lies in an unconscious realm, and to explore it we need not just rational capacities, but the ability to interpret dreams and symptoms to engage subjectively into the realms of darkness and terror that exist in our souls. Genothi's Sautone is not so much a command as a path, the active path of the soul, the path which we, as we traverse it, feel ourselves becoming more and more alive. I believe that the Greeks were right in identifying these five kinds of experience, choice, wonder, eros, inquiry, and relating, as the states when we are happiest and the soul feels most active and alive. However, we must ask one more question before we can draw this inquiry into ancient wisdom and its relation to modern life to a conclusion. What kind of soul is most able to be active? Here the philosophers offered another brilliant answer. The most active soul is the one with the best organization of its parts. I believe this answer not only to be true, but to be profoundly true. But it leads to a further question. What are the parts, and how are they best to be arranged? Here we must give why the Greeks still matter a different reading. It was in their description of the parts of the soul and their optimal arrangement that, for better or for worse, sent the West on its way into technological culture and which stands today as that which needs most correction if we are going to survive and thrive. I believe the Greek philosophers had four basic misreadings of the psyche, misreadings which still haunt us today. One, The basic parts of the soul are the desires and reason. They knew there was a third part, but were not clear on it. Plato called it Thumos, spirit, in the Republic, and Eros in the Symposium in Phaedrus. Aristotle called it Eros in the Metaphysics and the Entelechy in the Biological Works. But both concentrated on reason, achieving a dominance over the desires and the emotions, and whatever this third part was, was either in the service of reason or the motivational force wanting us to realize the highest forms of rational existence. The third part, for me, is the self. They actually missed the self. They got the other parts, but they missed the core of the psyche. Two, the second misreading was that their, con- was that their concept of order was hierarchical. When they thought of organization, they always thought of things ruling and being ruled. That was their only model for how to organize. Something had to rule something else. They had no idea about what an ecological or democratic kind of organization would be, in so far as they saw that as the organization of the soul and of the state, uh, they presented our culture with grave difficulties. Three, they thought, because they valued reason so much, they thought that life's journey had to have a completion. That they thought that if it was a series, 
that remained incomplete, you just died as you were getting more and more alive, that something was really wrong about that. That they wanted to find one great experience that would kind of end everything and pull us all together. But that one experience, insofar as it would end the previous series, is actually feels more like death than life. And so the way they conceive the highest kind of experience is always some static experience of knowing the universals and not moving from those universals. And this got into knowing God and not moving yourself away from God. I believe that the life of the soul, in fact, is most alive when it is always moving and in journey. But we have this in our past of looking for the one great experience which completes everything. And four, they miss the unconscious. And that's forgivable, but it's not forgivable for us because Freud discovered it. So what I want to end with is this. Rather than giving an attempt to work out a new way of thinking about the parts of the soul, it is more appropriate to say that the five great activities of the soul which I have described are soul activities, not rational activities or activities of any one part of the soul. They are motivated and involve every part of the soul and express the full being of the soul, not any part. When we experience from a part of the soul, something fails us in our activity. For instance, when we are overly rational, we are dead, at least partially dead. When we are overly emotional or desirous, we feel deadness in another way, as disorganization. The soul not only seeks to be as alive as it can be, it seeks to be whole, and this means not acting from the parts, but from acting from an integrity of one's soul. So what the Greeks have told us is that a life in which you were actively choosing your existence, being in love with as much as you possibly can be in your life, never ceasing to wonder at the strangeness that you are and that you encounter, ever inquiring into what might make life meaningful, and doing this in the midst of profound friendships, that is the good life. Notice that one can choose to live this kind of life in the midst of economic society. You can still enjoy the profound goods and services of this society without being doomed to its impoverishments. Submitting to an legitimating authority because you choose to is very different from finding yourself having to legitimate yourself. Having a critical rather than indulgent relation to your desires frees you to be active in relation to them rather than passively subservient. Inquiring into the meaning of life gives you further distance from the incredible impositions of modern life and thus you choose how much of it you want to adopt and what you want to leave behind in making sure you are loving as much of life as you can and engaging profoundly in friendships will take the awful edge off the pressure, the pressure to be constantly productive. Time, the fullness of time, might once again reappear. Notice finally, 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 that none of the essential activities of the soul are market activities or market commodities. They cannot be bought or sold. However, I must in truth say that each of these activities is profoundly aided by one essential activity that does typically need to be bought at least at its highest levels, namely education. With education, see, I'm coming back to Glenn. 
With education, we can open up new realms for the expansion of self, discover new possibilities for choice, deepen our abilities to think, and expand our possible friendships. <clears throat> the fundamental goal of all education, that is genuine education, is the enhancement of the soul's liveliness. However, most students come to college not for the sake of the well-being of their souls, but in order to get legitimated in the socioeconomic world. This makes education a passive activity and one which causes despair, depression, and a wish to do as little work as possible for the lowest grade one can tolerate, which given the demand for robust GPAs is typically B plus, B plus or A minus. Education conceived as such is part of the economic world. But strange things happen in good institutions. If all goes well, something will happen here to set your soul on fire, and you will discover its true nature as activity and refuse to thoughtlessly succumb to the pressures of modern life, to become merely a well-certified, highly-salaried professional living as a variable in a realm of generalized meanings. If all goes well here, you not only will discover the zestful life of a soul engaged in the inquiry into meaning, wondering ceaselessly at what is different and other, and opening up ever new realms of beauty for erotic pursuits, you will fall in love with your soul. You will become so attached to its aliveness that later in life when modern forces attempt to capture you and make you descend into a passive but well-paid everydayness, you will remember what happened here and not succumb. You our great CC students, will not be mere variations of themes of modernity, but will be beacons for the life of the soul, calling others to transcend economic modernity to discover more profound and alive ways to have a life. And this, my friends, ends my meditation into ancient wisdom and modern lives. <laughs>